You're listening to the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio with just a little bit of politics. Listen along as we interview some of the most experienced outdoorsmen in the industry today, where you'll learn valuable tips and tricks to make you a more successful hunter, shooter and fisherman. Here's your host of the Australian Hunting Podcast, Jason Selms. Welcome back to the Australian Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Selms, and this is episode 27, MLC, Shooters and Fishers Party, the Honourable Robert Borzak. It's a pleasure to have you back with us again for episode 27 of the Australian Hunting Podcast. And on today's show, I've got MLC of the Shooters and Fishers Party, the Honourable Robert Borzak, on my show, actually, I might add, for the third time. The reason I actually wanted to have Robert back on my show was because, as we're all aware, National Park Hunting passed legislation, you know, six to eight weeks ago. And I know I received a lot of questions from listeners about how it's going to work. Is there going to be any issues with access? Who's it going to be run by? There was a myriad of questions from listeners and I actually emailed uh, Robert and I asked him to come back on the show and he gladly obliged. And that's the great thing about you know, Robert Brown and Robert Borzak from the Shooters and Fishers Party. Always available to answer questions and at the best of times, politicians are, are very hard to get hold of. They're very hard to give you a straight answer and to be have Robert Borzak and Robert Brown accessible to give you, the listeners, the information firsthand and to cut out all the extra crap is fantastic and Robert Brown and Robert Borzak have certainly done a fantastic job uh, in their roles as members of the Upper House. Uh, you can also go to their website at shootersandfishers.org.au. I'm a member of the Shooters and Fishers Party so absolutely get on there and join the Shooters and Fishers Party. Also too you can donate to the Shooters and Fishers Party. Since Barry O'Farrell you know, passed a bill to cap payments to political parties it's more important than ever to donate to the Shooters and Fishers Party, so certainly jump over there and do that. Another piece of interesting legislation that I also discussed with Robert as well on the show was the reintroduction since 1995 for a new model of duck and quail hunting, and uh, Robert certainly gives us a lot of great information on what's happening with that bill, when it's going to be implemented, and uh, at what current stage it's at right now. So certainly a lot of information to take in, I hope you enjoy it. But in the meantime, don't forget our AustralianHuntingPodcast.com.au website is is now up and running. Feel free to jump over there to check out my YouTube channel, to subscribe in iTunes. You've got the widget bar down the right-hand side. You can just click on all the links there. It'll take you to everywhere you need to go. On the right-hand side too, you can also donate to the Australian Hunting Podcast. That's really important. That keeps us updated with software, my hosting and everything in between. I know a lot of, I got a few donations from people and that's absolutely fantastic. And every, every last little bit certainly helps, that's for sure. Don't forget, jump on the Facebook page, Australian Hunting Podcast. Twitter, AH Podcast. Email me. You love to hear from you at Australian Hunting Podcast at gmail.com. I'm still a little bit behind on the emails, but I'm endeavoring to get back to everybody as soon as I can. Uh, a lot of people email me about future guests on the show, questions they might have for Robert Borzak and all my other guests. So I try and get through them as quick as I can. Just hold out and I will be back with you as soon as I can. Uh, the best place to download the podcast is on iTunes. Rate it five stars and leave a comment. Don't forget, iTunes is free. Also, you can jump on my business website website aussieferalcontrol.com.au don't forget to share the australian podcast with your friends and family that's important yeah send them over the link to the facebook page if they want some good information on hunting shooting and fishing they can certainly check out the australian hunting podcast if you want to advertise with the australian hunting podcast flick me over an email at australianhuntingpodcast at gmail.com you know this is really worth it i enjoyed doing this podcast and you know it's for all you guys the listeners i mean i enjoy it too and sometimes i get guests on the show that i like to interview as well and things 
things that I want to know about and hopefully the things, these are things that you want to know about. If you have any ideas of guests that you want to have on the show, I'd love to hear from you and you can email me at AustralianHuntingPodcast at gmail.com. Give me some ideas of who you want to get on the show, who you want to hear from and I'll do my absolute best to get them on the show. So I mean that's pretty much about it for the episode 27 of me talking. So I hope you enjoy this interview. So let's rock this show. Without further ado, let's get into my interview with MLC, Shooters and Fishers Party, the Honourable Robert Borzak. Hi, this is Robert Borsack from the Shooters and Fishers Party, and we're talking gun crime and how to prevent it by voting for the Shooters and Fishers Party. And you're listening to the Australian Hunting Podcast. Robert Borzak, welcome back to the Australian Hunting Podcast for the third time. Pleasure to have you on my show again. Thank you very much, Jason. I hope people aren't getting bored with it all. No, absolutely not. I've received some good good feedback from the listeners. And I was thinking the other day, I was hoping uh, Brownie is not you know, harboring any resentment because I haven't had him on the show yet. Oh, he's not the sort of person to carry <laughs> grudge, mate. <laughs> I was thinking the other day, my friend was speaking to me and he said, he goes, oh, you're probably best off handing over the hosting mantle over to Robert Bors, like he's been on that many times. And I said, <laughs> maybe you're right, but I said he's probably too busy for that. I haven't got time for that, mate. You do right. a better job than me. <laughs> uh, thanks, appreciate it. So I guess at first we'll start off, I've got a couple of questions, you know, which we drafted up off a couple of the forums. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, a few other areas. So I guess the first one we might touch on is uh, what's the current status of the air munitions bill? I know it passed Parliament, I think, a few months back. Uh, what should we, you know, what are we going to see with this basically this useless piece of implement, you know, legislation implemented? And do you see it having any effect on criminals? And how's it going to affect the uh, licensed law-abiding shooters too? Well, our understanding is that um, the ammunition bill is going to be, um, the regulations will be finished and implemented by the end of November. That's what they're aiming for, and what they're talking about is putting in place exactly what the legislation says, that they're going to require people to produce their um, their licence papers to prove that they've got calibre so they can buy ammunition. What they are going to do is put in place, uh, again from our understanding, a, a special permit, again at the cost of $75, for people who are genuine um, or family members of genuine uh, primary producers so that they can, by class of firearm, not by calibre, uh, be able to be certified to go and buy ammunition on behalf of their um, family members who are, i.e. the farmers, I suppose. And that's where we see it going and we don't see this having any effect at all. Uh, this is part of an agenda uh, to, to look for ways and means that they, so they can start to develop a process of long-term control of ammunition. It, after all, that is part of the 1996 firearms uh, agreement, federal firearms agreement. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the next one probably, I've been hearing about this one for quite a while now, uh, but no doubt you have too, on whether the New South Wales Firearms Registry is being compromised. There seems to be a lot of uh, firearms-specific break and enters and, and thefts. Um, a few shooters I've had emails on have just expressed, you know, uh, concern about that. Even a forum member, again, I'm I'm going to try and find out more information about this one. He says he was he was contacted by someone wanting to do a safe storage inspection a few weeks ago, and uh, obviously when they said, "Did you have firearms at the property?" he got a bit concerned, hung up the phone, apparently called his local licensing sergeant. Apparently now this is again according to this person. They're actually using, uh, what would you call them, police volunteers to arrange safe storage inspections on behalf of police officers. Now, I'm going to find out more info. Is that Who has this information and, and, and who is able to use it? Well, I mean, our understanding is obviously that the, that the um, uh, firearms um, 
the, the registry obviously has all the information. Uh, our belief is that the registry has been compromised. Um, we do have some information around that, but we really can't talk about the detail of it. Um, the government, I think, is also painfully aware of it. Um, they're looking very closely at what they can do to try and fix that, but at this stage I can't tell you what, they, what they're going to do or what they're not going to do because uh, they haven't told us. So uh, they, I, I think they do realise that there is a bit of a spike occurring um, and somewhere down the line the registry has been compromised. I don't think there's any doubt. But I, whether, whether that's in the registry itself where the records are actually kept, I don't know, or whether it's information leaking out of the registry uh, in some way, shape or form, I, either via the police through the inspection processes or not, I don't really know. Um, I suspect that there is a, an opportunity in the, in the way that these procedures are handled that, that information could go astray from the time it leaves the registry to the time it gets into the hands of the police themselves to the time that they end up going and doing the inspections. Yeah, absolutely. There has been quite a... I mean, I don't think the police minister would probably be in the position, even if they had and they knew there was a known hack or, or the information had gone into hands they uh, you know, don't choose it to be in, would they actually admit that? Because, I mean, I've, I read a news article again probably a week ago where the firearms registry sent out, was it 50 licensed security personnel's firearms license on, in a, on a uh, spreadsheet to a, a few different companies? Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's uh, we, we heard the same thing, and uh, I think that really gets down to what I'm saying. I don't think that the problem is so much in the system or the computer systems within the police, uh, you know, the police uh, itself, um, because I think they've got, a, especially if that information is held, which we believe is held within the cop system, I think that's got a, that system's probably got a lot of integrity. It's what what it's when they take large swads of data out of that system and put it elsewhere, that worries me. And the, from the information we've received, that's where things are going astray um, because uh, it, it isn't easy uh, to uh, control that data and uh, who, who knows really what's going on. And I, I think that's really what it's all about. Um, there are far too, for example, that registry up in Tweed Heads, there are far too many casual employees involved with that, with that, uh, with that registry up there. Um, even though we, I'm sure they've got a core a number of people that are, are good, hard-working people and very loyal and very confidential. Uh, you just don't know who's coming and going when you're just bringing a, a conga line of casuals in and out all the time. You know, you just don't know where it ends up. Absolutely. And last thing we need, I guess, is a shopping list of firearms that are available out in the public domain that can, obviously, the people don't want to get their you know, pride and joy stolen. That's right. Look, and, and look, based on what we've been we've been told confidentially, we believe that 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 information has leaked out somewhere, and uh, and again, I you know I can't I don't want to get into any de more detail about that. But uh, we at this stage we don't know what the government's going to do or not do about it. The, the story you're talking about there in relation to the pistols, um, that was that that was actually something that probably would have come out of the um, out of the industry or the security register, which is I think is basically treated as a separate registry. Uh, and that information coming and going, being sent out in that way, is exactly illustrative of the level of service or lack of it that they provide. Um, obviously, their procedures and controls are breaking down. That, that's an indication of not so much the cop system being compromised or actually being hacked. It's just, a, you know, once it's appeared on a piece of paper and appeared on a spreadsheet, someone's just sent it all out to the wrong people. Now, that's, now that is just as bad, if not worse. Mm, sloppy, isn't it? I think you know, like why do we? Right. And if one of this, the person on the forum that spoke to me about uh, the issue of you know uh, police volunteers, why would police volunteer people be calling up on behalf of the 
you know, policing. So maybe that's something I might send on to you later on if I can find out more details to find it. Because if, you know, basic vol- police volunteers that aren't really policemen have got the details, what, there seems to be a severe disconnect here. Yeah, I'm not. I really, I don't really want to comment on that. I, I, you know, I don't know what happens. I think, I think the problem is that this is one of the things that we continually criticise uh, a government over, and this government is just as bad as the rest, if not worse, um, because now they're starting to pile more work on our ever increasingly overloaded police force and putting all sorts of extra compliance requirements on them to go and deal with uh, people like us, and instead of dealing with uh, criminals and. Uh, you know, that being the case, um, they could be better off spending their time chasing real pr- crims rather than doing two major episodes of um, safe storage inspection in the last three years, which is really, they've, they've done one lot and then they've come along done another lot. And most of that, as you probably already know, if you've been inspected, they're not only just checking your safe storage, that's an excuse. What they are doing is check, trying to check their records against ours in terms of what they think we've got and what what their records say we've got. And I haven't heard anyone really say, unless they've got only one or two firearms, that, uh, that the police have managed to turn up uh, with, a, with a comprehensive list of what firearms you're supposed to have on licence. Um, you know, I, I know, if I, even if I go back bloody 10 years ago when I got inspected, there were several firearms that uh, didn't appear on the register at that time, after, the, after I had registered them. So... You just you just go around in circles and up your own backside with all this sort of stuff. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I find that too. I I only had one probably. I think I spoke this about about three months ago, and I just I just got a card in the door. There was no prior call as to what they're supposed to do. I mean, they came out. I gave them a call. They came about an hour later, and subsequently I bought an air rifle about eight maybe nine weeks before that, and they didn't have it on there. She goes, Oh, we've only got this many on there, but you've got this many. I said, oh, no, it's all legitimate, I assure you. Oh, we'll just take the details down and we'll just check with the registry. I said, okay, that's fine. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, just certainly, I mean, I, that's not the only, that's just me. I mean, there's you know, hundreds of stories out there. But uh, the next one goes on. First of all, I want to say congratulations. You and Brownie have done a fantastic job, and I've got you know, quite a number of emails on the you know, national part, what you guys have been fighting for for the last, God, how many years? And uh, so I personally want to say thank you. You guys have done fantastic in a probably a, you know extreme difficult climate in this government to try and get some excellent results for you know hunters, shooters, and fishermen getting out there wanting to shoot. So thank thank you, sir, and thank you to Brownie too. You can extend my uh, thanks to him as well for working hard the last you know years you've been working at it. Yeah, no, thanks very much. Well, that, after all, that's what, that's what our job is, and that's what we're here to do. We're here to represent firearms uh, owners uh, at the political level because if we don't, have, don't do that successfully at the political level and no one says it's easy to do, um, then we won't have anything. We know what that's like. We know where, where that's going to go. They're running an agenda in Canberra and with all the state governments. It's still bipartisan. You have a look at some of the stuff that Jason Clare, the Minister uh, for uh, Home Affairs, amongst other things, is putting on the table at the moment in Canberra, and it's scary stuff. This bloke is a New South Wales uh, Labor Party member at the federal level, and uh, one thing we should be thinking about is um, campaigning against him in his seat of Bankstown in New South Wales at the next federal election. Uh, you know, he, he has his own... Uh, Firearms um, um, uh, Advisory Committee in Canberra. They've met on numerous occasions in the last 12 to 18 months, and uh, he's ignored every single ad- ad piece of advice that they've given him and gone off on his own tangent. It's just been a complete waste of time. Exactly. Before I noticed that too. Before I, before I was obviously a shooter and a fisherman. I I was a staunch Labor voter, but nah, no more. They've they've not only lost. Obviously, they lost me at a, at a federal level because I obviously vote Shooters and Fishers Party, but even. 
you know, at the uh, local level. I mean, John Robinson, I wrote to him about the ammunition bill. He wrote back to me and said, obviously, he would go with what the Minister for uh, Policing said at the time. Uh, and that he didn't, you know, he, he agrees with me and he, do, he doesn't blame licensed shooters for the for the crime that's going around. Then uh, three weeks later, he's uh, walking around with the Greens in uh, Katoomba National Park, if I'm correct, or National Park in Katoomba somewhere, uh, saying National Park and hunters won't be allowed in. So, I mean, you know, I've, I've done my best to get everyone in my local uh, area to n- never vote for the, the John Robertson again, that's for mm-hmm. sure. That's right, that's right. So... Um, I guess the next question is to so tell us. I mean, tell us about the National Park Hunting Bill. I mean, how did it come about, and why was it such a priority for the Shooters and Fishers Party? Oh, I think it's a, you know, it's a big, it's a big ask of any government, given what's been going on over the years. Uh, it's it's part of our comprehensive set of um, uh, policies. I mean, anyone who wants to look at our policies, they've heard me say it before, but they just got to go to our website, and you'll see that it's all up there in black and white. Uh, we've developed these policies over a number of years, um, and since it's such an important thing, um, it was the next stage of our, our logical development of our process uh, or concept for the Game Council and public land hunting in New South Wales. And uh, what we were looking for was the opportunity to put it to government in a way that would make sure that we could get it delivered. And uh, and we think we've done that, so uh, that part of it anyway. So uh, that uh, the, my understanding, we haven't been involved in the implementation side of it, so I really can't comment on that. Uh, but uh, the reality is that um, we we understand that it's progressing okay, and uh, sometime, you know, late December, early January, the first parks will start to roll out, roll out available for hunting under the Game Council model that currently exists for state forest hunting. Absolutely. Um, that probably goes into the next question. I mean, Barry O'Farrell was always quoted as saying he was never going to support the bill. There'd be no national park hunting. You know, so was it you know, a last-minute backflip, say, by the Liberal government, or did you guys have you always knew he was going to support it, or was that a last-minute thing? Oh well, I mean, whether it's last minute or not uh, depends on you know, last minute to what point. Um, we we we've always got to take him on what he says. If he said he wasn't going to support it, he wasn't going to support it. We didn't have any uh, backroom deals or any other understandings. The reality is, uh, uh, if he didn't support uh, what we wanted um, in terms of delivering for our constituents, well, we can't see why we were supporting him for delivering on his constituents. That's really what it gets down to. And uh, the things that are important to us, uh, we have to deliver. And the things that are important to him, he wants to deliver. So somewhere along the line, uh, someone has to make a decision. Um, it's no use trying to stare us down because it won't work. Um, well, you won't stare us down. That's just not. That's not. <laughs> that's not in our makeup. Absolutely. I remember watching it on the uh, the parliamentary website. You know, and when they were actually debating. The Game and Federal Animal Control Act, and some of the, I mean, honestly, watching it, I mean, you guys were professional and fantastic, I found. The Greens, on the other hand, especially David Shoebridge, I mean, Jeremy Buckingham, him, him in particular about, you know, saying things like, you know, oh, the deer sent you, the guy's going to be lurking in the bushes. I watched about four hours of that, and literally, <laughs> literally, for any people that don't know, I mean, go on the parliamentary website and just watch it. I mean, not only was it eye-opening for me, it was just, I saw what the Greens, like, how they truly, truly perform and how they act, and Needless to say, absolutely astonishing. And they seem to say like a lot of this stuff is dirty deals, but they seem to only mention that when things go against them, not when things go for them, like with duck hunting in 95 with the car government. They weren't saying there were dirty deals done then, were they? Well, that, that's right. But of course, they look, it's, they can call it a, a dirty deal. They can call it a clean deal. They can just call it any sort of deal they like. In the end, that's exactly what it is. Uh, and uh, going back to 95, car did a deal to get duck hunting banned, 
um, and we've done a deal to get it back again. Um, it's as simple as that. That's how that's how you do business. Business is about doing deals. If the government doesn't want to do it, well, they don't have to do it. But don't come along to us asking for our support on things that they need passed through the upper house. Let them go and talk to the Greens. Yeah, absolutely. No, you guys have done, a, as I said, fantastic job. So uh, what are some of the key points of the National Park legislation that you think are obviously some of the most important parts of that bill, would you say? Oh, I think I think the most most important parts of it relate to uh, the integrity of the system that uh, the Game Council is going to put in place. Um, you know, as you know, you're an licensed hunter. Uh, you know, there's an online booking system, uh, written permission system. Uh, there's governance involved with the whole process. There's a testing uh, regime that goes through. It's it's all about um, people getting proper access to areas. Uh, within national parks or other public land where they know that there will be the availability of uh, game or feral animals that need to be taken out of the system. And uh, and there's no, there's no shame in the fact that, uh, yes, we are promoting a culture of hunting. Uh, it's, it's, normal, it's a normal part of society. Uh, it's a normal part of what we're all about, and we unashamedly promote it. We're not trying to, as the Greens would run around and like to say, with all their propaganda that we're promoting an American gun culture. It's got nothing to do with gun cultures. What it's all about is a hunting culture. If we were an Aboriginals, they wouldn't be saying that about us. Okay? Um, Aboriginals are allowed to hunt. Just because my skin is white and not black, why can't I hunt? You know, I asked that question, and of course you can't get a rational answer out of Greens because everything they say is irrational. Yeah, that's right, Craig. What do you what do you think? So, what do you think? I mean, when hunters are going to be going out in national parks, what do you think? Some of the positives that will come out of uh, hunting in national parks? Oh, I think you'll see the same positives that come out of uh, uh, the current program with state forests. Uh, there's uh, a tremendous economic and uh, and um, other benefits that rural and regional New South Wales will get. I mean, there's uh, I, and I, I can't quote the numbers off the top of my head because I've been a long way from it. But I know the Game Council does a uh, an annual survey on public benefit. They also look very carefully at what the state plan requirements are in terms of what what's good and what they're trying to achieve. And they they tick a lot of boxes in that area. Um, you know, the thing we ta all talk about is the removal of uh, a significant number of game and feral animals over a period of time. But even more importantly, too, uh, you know, it will, it will reduce the impact of these uh, 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 game and feral animals on neighbouring properties and make it easier for those properties to be able to continue their farming activities without the interruption of the lock it up and leave it non-management program that's been currently run in New South Wales, at least for the last... I don't know, 16 or 20 years. Um, and it's it really, I suppose in the past people weren't too worried about it, um, but the but the National Parks Estate in the last 16 or 18 years has, you know, more than doubled. And the uh, the uh, the erosion, if you like, or the predation of feral animals is much more extensive now onto the agricultural, adjoining agricultural lands than it's ever been before. So it's not something that goes under the radar anymore. It's humongous. That's right. And the Greens seem to get upset, don't they? They say, oh, the Game Council is going to be looking after, you know, or National Parks, uh, the, the access, or it looks after state forest access. I mean, who, who do they expect to look after it? Bureaucrats? I mean, of course you're going to have, in my opinion, people that hunt uh, in charge of they, um, in the they, Game uh, Council. The, 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 it, people should understand what Greens are all about. Greens are all about criticising but never delivering a solution. You've only got to look at what goes on in Canberra. You've only got to look at what they've done here in New South Wales. 
they don't, they don't worry about a, a full 360 solution to anything. Uh, as long as they get what they see as their short-term gain, i.e. some more of their people elected into Parliament, that's all they're interested in. They're not interested in anything else. They don't care whether they destroy jobs. They don't care whether they destroy uh, the land that, uh, of neighbouring uh, farmers or, or property owners. Uh, they don't care if they destroy stock. They don't care if they denude the land. They don't worry about any of those things. It's all about uh, that being then in turn translated to votes for them uh, amongst the urban people of New South Wales who don't really understand the issues and what actually happens out there. Hunters, uh, and I might add fishers, do understand because they actually go out there and do something about it. And they do it as part of what they love to do, and that's hunt and fish. That's right, and that, that's, why we, that's why we vote for the Shooters and Fishers Party, don't we, folks? <laughs> oh, I certainly hope so. <laughs> Absolutely. So, I mean, I've got some emails from listeners. I know you posted uh, this on your website as well, but will there be any uh, issues with access uh, with National Parks and Wildlife Service Rangers? Obviously, they've you know, been, I mean, you know, Andrew Hesterlow, that was assaulted by one of the Greens members, and there were some rangers that were, you know, in uniform that were at that uh, protest. But obviously, they're going to make it difficult for hunters. Is that going to be an issue? Or will it be totally managed by the game council? I know this is a big one for a lot of our listeners. Well, I think no. I think I think the whole thing will be managed by the game council. Uh, but keep in mind that the game council, even on the forestry arrangements, does it hand in glove with police, and they do it hand in glove with forestry, uh, forest New South Wales people, and they'll be doing it hand in glove with national parks staff as well. Okay, as far as that, that's concerned. But the actual model for access and the mo- and all those sorts of things will remain the same. That's my understanding. So it's not as if you know, like rangers are going to be tagging hunters around and, no. and having to, you know, full time supervision type of thing. Well, that's no, no, that's not, that's not, that's not what's going to happen. So, Robert, so when can hunters and shooters expect access to national parks to start hunting? When's it looking like? Oh, I think. Look, the 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 act itself won't be fully assented to until about the uh, about the middle to late December, and I would expect it sometime after that, subject to what um, to what the uh, government does with um, sorry the national parks and the game council do in terms of arrangements access arrangements. Sometime after that, those those parks will then become available for access for hunting. Um, I don't see it going any other way because that's the, the actual act was structured that way to give basically six months for the game council to work through all the issues, work out the access plans, you know, upgrade the computer software systems, et cetera, et cetera, and work out how they're going to do it all. Um, and, that, and that's really no different at all to what happened in relation to access to uh, state forests when we first got started. It's just that most people didn't know what we were doing and didn't because it never been done before and it was all being done under the radar. But now this is being done in the big glare and spotlight of public opinion or some public opinion and uh, so people are taking more notice of it. But from where I sit, I don't see... Look, the really important environmental areas like, like declared wilderness and... Um, and world heritage areas are going to be excluded anyway. So those uh, those areas, if they are sensitive, you won't get access to those areas. They'll be in uh, game council parlance. They'll be exclusion zones. So you won't be able to go in there. So as far as the rest of the national parks and parts and places are concerned, um, there's no reason to assume at all why hunters wouldn't get generalised access in the way that it's currently done with state forests. 
Absolutely. Uh, one of the interesting parts I found it too was will protesters be charged for hindering hunters under this new legislation? Uh, obviously, hunters have expressed, you know, especially about national parks, people getting out there protesting that become aggressive. Will this be implemented? Obviously, it's part of the legislation. Will it be backed up if, if, if hunters are being harassed and by protesters, etc.? I think the answer is yes, uh, they will. But the again, the Game Council model doesn't allow itself for that. Uh, when you get a written permission and you go and have a hunt, who's going to know where you are or, or doing, or, you know, doing what you're doing uh, at any and when you're doing it? I suppose that's the right answer. Uh, that's the way it works on public land, and uh, you'll just come and go in accordance with what the requirements of the law are. And uh, you know, protesters, if you like. I can't see them turning up because they won't know where you are or what you're doing. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, I love and, it. And if and if and if they if someone does perchance turn up on a regular basis at various people, you know, in and around various people, then obviously there's a leak in the system, and and the game council software systems are sophisticated enough to detect who has been leaking the information and where it's going. Absolutely, absolutely. I think it's some good stuff. I think hunters were just worried about you know either being you know, stonewalled by the national parks or not offered any type of help. You know, when you know, realistically, if they're doing their job and they're being paid by the government, they should be doing their required job they're paid to do. Well, right, and I actually believe that they will do all of that, okay, in due course. They will... Uh, look, what you're seeing is a very loud vocal minority of certain national parks people who I don't believe are the majority uh, and members of the PSA who have decided that they're going to try and make a political event out of this rather than what it really is. Yeah, exactly. No, I think it's I think it's fantastic. I'm just, you know, some people have said to me, you know, how's it going to how's it going to affect me? I don't hunt in national parks, but I always said it's 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 now public opinion as well and the more access we can get and the more positive for hunting and shooting. I mean, I think that's even a bit a big win in itself because yeah, any positive legislation is good legislation. Now that the public know about it, I mean, if some don't accept it, I mean, they'll have to learn to accept it. And when they see that there's no issue with it, it'll just become the daily the daily norm. And that's what we want. To, I think. I think that's what we want to happen. That's right. That's it. Absolutely. That's it. And uh, you know, I'm sure there'll be some events that will occur as we go down the line, and certain things. The most important thing is for all hunters that are involved in this program to deport themselves properly uh, within national parks, uh, to do the right thing all the time and to err on the side of being conservative. If you doubt, don't do it. And, uh, you know, there's, there is no reason for not doing the right thing. This is a grand opportunity to contribute to the conservation efforts in this state. These areas that will have a lot of feral animals in there, in you know, sort of on the ground, and there'll be a lot of opportunity for hunters to be able to participate. Absolutely. I think it's great. Fantastic. I'm excited, Robert. I'm excited. <laughs> you sound um, like it. Yeah. I, I am. Uh, a, obviously, this has been a big one that's come up too recently as well. Um, everyone knows I'm a huge, I like duck hunting and wing shooting. Absolutely love it. Don't get to do much of it here, obviously, in Australia, in this state, obviously, at the moment, unless I travel to other areas. But obviously, recreational duck hunting. Will it be introduced uh, before this coming rice season? And can you give us a bit more information? Well, our understanding is uh, is that it will be introduced before the current rice season. Um, Robert Brown gave notice last Monday, uh, sorry, last Tuesday uh, this week uh, of a bill, um, and we know the government's been doing a lot of homework in the background trying to understand the model that that's being put forward by the Game Council. Again, I don't have the detail on that because we're not part of that process. 
but we do know that uh, the, the council has been working with members, certain members of the government, to let them understand how it's all going to work, and we understand that that's all going along well. Um, yeah, Robert gave notice of a bill. I believe probably next next week he'll he'll bring that bill forward, and uh, and hopefully it will all be finished, dust and dusted, uh, done and sorry, done and dusted by the end of September. So, uh, in which case we could then look forward to uh, uh, duck shooting or the commencement of duck mitigation shooting at least on the rice for this season, and the development of a proper adaptive management model for the rest of the state. Uh, as the Game Council starts to take proper control of the scientific management and study of ducks and quail in New South Wales. Yeah, I mean, people have been waiting 20 years for this, for this Robert. Like, how big is this, do you think? Oh, I think it's, I think it's massive. I think uh, it's, got, it's got a lot of fantastic potential. Uh, see, what people have got to understand, for at least the last 16 or 17 years, when, uh, uh, when, when the car government closed the season doing their little deal. Um, no research work on ducks in New South Wales has been done at all. No research work has ever been done on quail. Now we all know that the only people that provide research data, if you take the overseas uh, examples uh, on waterfowl, especially in North America and places like that where they do extensive waterfowl management, uh, is all the data and I might add all the money is or most of the money is provided by uh, the hunters, and that's the model we're going to move towards uh, in terms of getting the data. So it's not just going to be a matter of oh, I've got a duck license, I'm going to go out there and bang away. No, it's not going to be the way it works. It, you get a duck license, and you'll be provided, you'll be required to provide some uh, feedback and input on what you shot, where you shot it, how many you shot. What, you know, you'll be given a bag limit. You won't be able to just shoot anything any place. Uh, the Game Council is also developing its own WIT test to upgrade and update uh, the test that's been around probably since the 60s or 70s, uh, the only one that, that one that was developed in Victoria, and still is used to good effect in Victoria, but the Game Council has just about finished a new model of that, which ultimately has been, uh, will be disseminated via the internet all over the state, and from what I understand, it will also become the new standard Australia-wide for WIT testing. Yeah, well, I think that's fantastic. I can see too how, you know, from when the inception of the Game Council started, how everything's flowing along nicely. I mean, how can I explain this in the best way? It's just I can see the Game Council becoming a very, very positive uh, area for people that want to be able to hunt in Australia. Very similar, I won't say very similar to the US, but how, you know, hunting is managed properly by the Game Council. And as I said before, I know the Greens say, oh, why would it be managed by hunters? But who else is it supposed to be managed by? People that, you know, scientists, people that know what they're actually talking about. Why would we have bureaucrats managing the Game Council who know basically zero about hunting? That's right. And that's, and that's exactly what, what uh, you don't want to have happen. And look, Everything's political these days, and the, look, the reality is the only reason you have a game council is because you've got the Shoes and Fishers Party there, full stop. Without us here to advocate for it, without us here to do all the sort of things we're just here discussing now, there would be nothing. There would be less than nothing. That's really what it gets down to. I can and see the game council becoming very, very strong over the next, you know, even in five, ten, fifteen years. I can just see it becoming, you know, what people, you know, the pinnacle of what people, you know, look for in 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 game management. That's right. Well, I, I, I certainly hope so. Um, it's in, it is an important uh, uh, organisation uh, that can and will be providing uh, a lot of good scientific data on waterfowl in New South Wales.
Well, there seems to be... Uh, I'm heading down to the Rice in November, Robert, for a whole week. Now, I'm ready to go. Now, a lot of people know they need the National Parks Wildlife uh, Game Bird uh, Permit. Um, will this be the same under the Game Council, or will, after this is all said and done, we won't need to be dealing with the uh, Riverina office, I think it is, for the Game Bird Permits, and will, be, will we will be doing it through the Game Council? It'll all be done through the Game Council. There won't be a two-licensing system anymore. There'll be simply one license, and that license will be issued by the Game Council. That's the way it'll work. Well, that's this, this is fantastic. I mean, pe- listeners are going to love this information. I mean, this is the biggest thing I think it's happened in oh, God knows how long. It's just fantastic. So, but another listener mentioned to me he says fox bounties in New South Wales. It's back on the listener's agenda, Robert. Uh, it's been very successful in, in Victoria. I think eighty something thousand, probably more by now. Foxes have been taken on the bounty. Is this a possibility? People, you know, love hunting their foxes. They wouldn't mind, you know, getting the $10 or whatever it is per fox. Is that realistic? Obviously, we think it's a great idea, but the government doesn't seem to like the idea. They say they haven't got enough money for it. They don't (laughs) want to do it. Uh, Maybe maybe with the Greens and their carbon tax, they might have enough for it eventually. Well, you know, at the state level, I mean, the reality for New South Wales is, and you have to, um, you have to properly consider, you know, what the government says and does. Um, they're budgeting for an eight or nine hundred million dollar deficit this year in New South Wales, so they're busy slashing and burning and cutting costs all all over the traps. I mean, even the Game Council's um, uh, budget for this year was sliced, so everyone copped a piece of the of the pie, a reduction in the size of their pie, I suppose. <laughs> um, and uh, that's the way it is. The economic circumstances will govern what happens, and uh, I think you're going to see a few years like this. It's not going to just change overnight in any real quick or easy way. Um, I think we're looking at, unless consumers in New South Wales starts to move again, um, you're looking at at least one or maybe two years of uh, slow economic and sluggish economic activity. And uh, while ever GST revenues down uh, and stamp duty revenues are down, the government uh, is going to see its, itself continually challenged in terms of revenue, and it then has to do what it is doing, and that is try to cut its costs. Um, what the government, I think, is doing quite correctly is not um, is not just seeking to spend beyond their means. Uh, it's important that they keep the AAA rating and uh, and that the government maintains a good reputation for fiscal and economic management in the state. And if they do that, they're more likely to bring us out of the, the doldrums we're in at the moment. There seems to be uh, Labor seem to have been ruffling the greens for this recently, especially federally. You know, they're getting hammered on radio stations, 2GB, etc., do you think they're in for a big shock, at least at the next election, either federally or state-wise, Rob? I think, well, they've had a big surprise. Uh, sorry, they've had a big shock. Um, um, I don't know whether you could say it was a shock. <laughs> Last year <laughs> in New South Wales, they copped an even bigger shock, I suppose, in Queensland. Um, and uh, um, it remains to be seen what will happen in Victoria when their election comes up. Um, but um, at the federal level, definitely they're going to get the if the, if the trend continues and the polls continue to run the way they are, they are going to have be in real trouble. Um, but I don't I I don't see um, things changing much uh, going the way of the government. Uh, sorry, the way of the opposition in New South Wales between 2015 uh, between now and 2015. What we're seeing is um, uh, that the Labor Party is I think probably now belatedly realised that leaning on green preferences uh, and allowing the left-wing agenda, which is really what's happening in Canberra. You've got to remember that uh, Prime Minister Gillard comes from the far left originally of the uh, Labor Party, that these people are out of touch with reality. They don't, they're out of touch with um, 
the concerns and the requirements of ordinary people. So it's not hard for them to uh, to identify with the sort of uh, bullshit issues that the Greens put up, and uh, and that that sort of cheap vote that the uh, Labor Party in New South Wales and federally have been buying for the last 20 or 25 years, seeking green preferences to do things uh, and then, uh, sorry, offering to do things while in government to get green preferences so they can stay in government, has now got them to where they are now. And I I think it's important for the Labor Party to do what they've just done and that is, uh, you know, publicly realise it. Um, Sam Dastiari said the right thing um, uh, in their approach. I think Sussex Street's on the right track. Uh, I hope they continue with working very hard because in the end, for small parties like the Shooters and Fishers Party and in turn Shooters and Fishers themselves, it's not good to have um, the two major political forces in the country uh, not evening up to one another. When you've got the Labor side of things, whether you agree with their politics or not, or vice versa, it's not good to have um, one side of politics so far and above and so powerful that uh, the other side can't mount a reasonable opposition and become a credible op a potential government. Because that ameliorates uh, extremism, especially in the areas that we're concerned with, but also gives us an opportunity to work between the two uh, as a party, an opportunity to grow our representation and also an opportunity to trade off on the things that we want after we've done well in, a, in an election. And that's really where we sit now. Exactly. It's funny, I was listening to 2GB, I don't normally listen to 2GB actually, but I listened to them the other day and they were talking about, you know, like the asylum seekers and how there's 600 dead. I mean, could you imagine if, you know, like, uh, let's say one person, something happened to somebody in a state forest, where the Greens would be all over it, you know, they'd be all over it, it'd be in the news, it would be everywhere, yet... The, the Labor government seems to just let people, I mean, obviously they've hopped on a boat of their own of their own accord, but, you know, 600 people are dead and it's only now that a panel has handed down what they, what they think is a decision to change what was originally working under the, you know, Howard government. So, I mean, it's just amazing how they can let 600 people die, yet if something happened to one person in a state forest, they'd be, you know, be all over the news, hunting, you've got to be banned, firearms banned, you name it. It's just, it's just ridiculous. That's right, because there's an agenda. They're running an agenda. And uh, what they need to do, um, all governments in Australia and certainly certainly the New South Wales government needs to do, is it needs to leave the politics of gun control back in the 90s where it was. And what they need to do is come to grips with uh, this current century. They need to come to grips with the nature of the sporting and, and hunting shooter in New South Wales. And they need to understand that scapegoating shooters uh, for criminal activities uh, in an attempt to try to get some overall gun control program going isn't going to work in the end because shooters and fishers in New South Wales and elsewhere in Australia are becoming a much louder voice in politics. And they're going to continue to do that. And, what they're and so what governments are going to have to do is, regardless of what stripe they wear, they're just going to have to learn to live with it. And the sort of things we're talking about are not revolutionary all we want to do is to be treated decently and and uh, be allowed to have a reasonable expectation that we can within the law which we will be part of the process of trying to control uh, allow us to get on and do with what we want and the greens will recede over time into nothingness they will disappear that's where they're going well, uh, uh, i'm, I'm with you i hope so <laughs> one two three electoral cycles they'll be reduced to a rump I think people are starting to cotton on to them too, Robert. I think they're really starting to realise, you know. It's good to see in the uh, in the in the in the, uh, in the 
paid media, it's good to see on the social media that uh, people now are starting to understand what it really means to be green. And uh, we're all green to a large degree. After all, hunters are the original greenies, right? But the reality is that uh, they've, they've lived this charade in politics for so long that uh, they've almost killed, as, a, as the leeches that they are, they've almost killed the host, being the Labor Party. But I, I just, it just seems, and it's good, as I said earlier, that the Labor Party has now started to wake up to that. And if the Labor Party decide to preference the Greens last, and if the Labor Party want to attack us rather than leave it up to the Greens, well, to tell you the truth, I'm quite happy that they do because we're more likely to be in a situation where one day we can do business with the Labor Party again. We'll never be able to do business with the Greens. Yeah, absolutely. I think Labor in for a rude shock though at the, ne- the the federal election. You know, in a couple of years. I mean, I don't, oh, yeah. I don't even think they know what they're even up for. I mean, if they can even save this, I don't even think it's even possible with what's happened over the last year or two. So, but anyway, I, I thought I'd answer this question too. I'm, I'm getting Andrew Hestelo on my who was assaulted by the Greens at the uh, Waronga uh, Parks uh, protest probably four or five weeks ago now. I mean, how can we? avoid, I mean, obviously not in the protesting environment, let's say we're at national parks, how should shooters you know, present themselves if they come up against someone who may be, say, either verbally aggressive or otherwise? How can we present ourselves as shooters? Oh, well, the easiest way to do is just pack your guns up and, and leave, the, leave the immediate area. Go somewhere else and hunt. Don't, con- don't confront anybody. Just stay away from them. And they'll, they'll get sick of it before you do. I mean, that, that's the reality of it because they're only out there for once or twice you know, maybe three times if they can find you. Uh, <laughs> hunters are out there all time, every time. I mean, you know, by the time we get up and running in national parks, there'll be over 20,000, over 20,000 uh, hunters who will be licensed to hunt in national parks and and, and uh, state forests. So what are they going to do about that? I know, it's hilarious. I think that, yeah, they're not, they, normally go, they, yeah. Exactly, they normally go two or three times and then they, they're back watching TV again. That's right. Look, <laughs> the other thing that, that that most people don't understand is when we talk in terms of, I think currently there are about 19,000 game council licensed hunters, but the game council in six and a half years has actually sold and currently certified over 35,000 licensees. Okay, so it's not a matter, it might have 19,000 current licensees, but they've actually certified over uh, over 35,000. And that number's growing at the rate of about two to 3,000 a year. And it will continue to grow. It's not going to stop, regardless of what government thinks they can do or not do, because it's because it's 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 not subject to political whim, the the need and the will to go hunting. That's right. I think people need to understand the enormity of the setup of the game council. And as I said, I think ten, fifteen years, as I said, we hope so. Well, six six and a half years ago, Jason, there was not one single person that was licensed to hunt on public land. Now we've got thirty five thousand who are in six and a half years. Brilliant, isn't it? You know, you guys have done a fantastic job. And I say to everyone, if you're not voting Shooters and Fishers Party, what on earth are you doing? So, vote That's also them. a very large rump of people, not to mention the fact that there are nearly 200,000 firearm, licensed firearm owners in New South Wales that if they decide to get pissed off with the government, they, they aren't easy. They aren't easily stirred. Sorry, they, they can be very easily stirred up. You know, the government, no matter what stripe it has or what stripe it wears, must think very carefully before they're going to start sticking it up shooters and hunters in New South Wales and and fishers as well. That's right. It's changing. I think it really is changing, and for the better too. Even though we've got you know, there's a few hiccups along the way, like the ammunition bill. 
I think by far, I think uh, starting to change, especially you know since like '96. So, but how's the setup of uh, SFP going in uh, Western Australia, Rob? Is there any plans for any other states, South Australia, Victoria, etc.? Uh, well, at this stage, um, no. At this stage, Western Australia is um, they've just submitted uh, their registration application. They've they've got more than 500 members now, um, and 500 being the minimum you need to join, to register a party over there. Um, and uh, yeah, they're just going through the process. I would think that they'll have their application lodged uh, by the end of this month. And um, it, I think it takes them about, uh, from what I've been told, it takes two to three months to get uh, probably closer to three months for the Electoral Commission in WA to vet it all and then get it up and running. That's fine. So I was going to say, we were speaking on a previous podcast, which just said maybe a possibility. I'm not sure if it was tackled. I don't think it was tackled in the Game and Feral Animal Control Act. Game reserves in New South Wales, did we find out anything on that front? Well, the Game reserves in New South Wales is is not part of the current arrangements. Um, What we've done is we've given notice to the the, uh, government in in the House that we'll be seeking uh, amendments to the uh, Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act to legalise game reserves. And uh, that's as far as it's got so far. And Because uh, what we want to do is, once once that uh, process, once those uh, prohibitions are removed, uh, we think then that the uh, industry should then be allowed to get on and do what it's got to do. Because there are plenty of, there are plenty of property owners around the state that would love to run their properties as game reserves. It doesn't need excessive regulation or control. We, after all, are talking about private land, and in most cases, we're talking we're not talking about adding any extra introduced species. This is something that really is just a no-brainer. Uh, the the restrictions that were put on back in the late 80s, I think, that's when all that happened, uh, aren't necessary and aren't proper in these in these times and uh, they really should be uh, altered and fixed. So we get this stuff out of the road, then we'll have a look at the next stage of it. Exactly. If people are like, you know, they've got cropping areas. That, I mean, this will be an, a major economic boomer for some of these areas. I mean, if they have crops and they're, you know, they're, instead of having to control themselves or pay somebody, I mean, they can get hunters that, you know, want to come on on a weekend. They just want to, you know, pay their money. They want to come from the city and they can hunt, whether it be, you know, a certain type of bird or, you know, pigeons or whatever it may be. They can go out there and be able to do that. And, you know, the, also the farm owners making money and it's great for everybody. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Absolutely. Oh, I got a I got a question from, this is from Sean three hundred WSM. Nice name there, I guess. If you like three hundred WSM, but he says he's a Victorian shooter now. He said he doesn't know much about the R license system. Is he able to, as a non New South Wales resident, apply for an R license to hunt in New South Wales? Oh, most definitely, most definitely. And there are plenty of, um, there are plenty of um, AHOs, approved hunting organisations in Victoria, who he can contact. The ADA, for example, is a good example. Um, the SSAA down there, I think, are, uh, and a number of other clubs. Uh, Fielding Game, for example. They all are approved hunting organisations, approved by the Game Council for testing and the issuing of our licences. So, yeah, not, not a problem at all. Absolutely. He also got his second question, I guess, revolves around the police minister wanted to drop the P650 try shooting. Uh, is that on the agenda? Is that not going to happen? Is that being vigorously fought? Well, it, it is being vigorously fought, but I, I don't assume for one moment that the government is seeking to uh, to remove it. They, they're not said that to us. They're, what they're simply saying is that uh, this is an issue that they need to work through with us, and that's what they're doing. So we will vigorously oppose it should they decide that they want to remove it. But uh, at this stage, they're not saying they're going to remove it. Um, what they're simply saying is that uh, 
it's out there and it needs to be discussed and dealt with. So we're working with them on in good faith on that basis. I think that's a fair call, yeah. All right, I've got a, uh, I guess my final question from another listener, Robert, from GSR. He says he'd like to know the opinion. Uh, this is obviously part of what we spoke about, the ammunition bill, but the Parliament's ammunition bill, and he says the possible requirement because of the wording that PTAs now must specify a particular calibre. Is this happening, and can you fill the listeners in on what's going to happen with that? Well, my understanding is that that's, what's going to, that's what they're going to try to do. Um, but how they're going to do it, I don't really know. Um, I think I, it, it's, it's unworkable as far as we're concerned, and we have asked for uh, some more discussion on it. We have the New South Wales now has a firearms represent, uh, rep, sorry, advisory council, and it's what, that's one of the things that we would like to see brought to the council so that we can actually make comment on it, see whether it's going to work or not. Uh, but my understanding is that they want to put a calibre on the PTA, uh, which is really going to be quite silly if you think about it. But uh, uh, at the moment, that's our understanding. But we haven't seen the detail of anything yet in terms of what they're planning on doing because we had a meeting of the advisory council on Monday and they don't know what they're doing themselves just yet. Mm. I mean, yeah. what does it have to make a good choice before you put your permit in, I guess? Well, it, it seems silly. You know, I mean, if you uh, ask for a permit for a 243, um, and then you decide to change your mind, you, you throw it away and ask for another one. Okay, you've thrown some money away, but uh, it's just going to potentially increase the workload for the registry. Whereas they could have issued one permit for any class, A or B, just take the most common examples. Now they'll have to start start issuing permits for, you know, whereas before it might have been a class A rimfire, um, you might have got a 22 or, or, or class B centrefire. Um, one one PTA could incorporate any centrefire. Now you could have potentially have 10, 20, 30, 50 PTAs for a Class B. That's right. If it's your first firearm too, you might have to wait the six weeks if you don't get it right the first time well, I again. Think, I, think, I think that's part of the problem. And, that, and a lot of this stuff gets back to what we were talking about before. Um, the registry is uh, trying to deal with uh, highly complex issues and those people in there are not qualified to handle them. And the registry is just becoming an absolute uh, bureaucratic nightmare. That is, you know, you might even say if they do any more of these major changes, it's going to become unworkable. I know. I know when you got your first... I can understand a first firearm having to wait any type of firearm that you buy. And I know there were some legislative changes a few years back where, you know, that basically once you have one in possession of that particular category, you don't have to wait the 28 days, which is, which is fine. But then why are they doing that with, say, if I, let's say I get, I've got a Category A, I've already got, say, a shotgun, I, I shoot clay targets. Then I want to get, oh, I realise I want to go hunting, so I want to get, you know, I get my Category B, but then because, or even if it was a Category C or D firearm, you know, why do I have, if I've already got two or three firearms in possession of a certain category, why do I have to wait another 28 days to get a firearm for which I've already got three in possession. I mean, if their idea is to stop well, hang people on. doing no, something... No, no, but, no, but you're out of date. That, that doesn't apply anymore. If, you're, if you've already got a firearm in a particular class, you don't have to wait the 28 that's days. Right. That's correct, that's correct. That was, one, that was one of the changes that we put through, or actually Roy put through, yep. uh, in the last parliament. So that that is the case already. So, um, But, um, yeah, uh, it'd be interesting to see what happens... If you've got an existing two four three, whether you can get another two four three, and at the moment, at the moment, I don't believe that they can stop you getting another two four three. And but that's one of the things they would like to do. They'd like to say they'd like to tell you what calibers you're allowed to use. 
uh, just as just as in New South Wales and other parts of of Australia, they've been seeking to tell you what you what calibre you can legally shoot on a range. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Silverdale's a good example of that. Um, Malabar was a good example of that, uh, where they sought through all fair means and foul to illegally restrict your usage of legally held firearms on legally licensed ranges for no good reason there are no reasons in there were no good reasons offered up in terms of safety or uh, social or or a community benefit nothing whatsoever uh, what it gets down to is that uh, it gets down to what I was talking about earlier um, the police and certain people in the police ministry and governments need to get over the 1996 uh, 1990s approach and develop a new approach and dump the the agenda driven uh, control of uh, firearms owners and think more of it in terms of these people are hunters, these people are um, shooters and, uh, and oh, again I throw in fishers, uh, they don't need to be over-regulated and treated like criminals in waiting. Exactly. As soon as something happens, Port Arthur. As soon as something happens, Port Arthur. It's well, the, the same port, thing over and over. There, there's, you know, they... The, they don't. They didn't have a port. They, they had plenty of uh, problems in New Zealand, but they haven't had the same uh, um, buyback arrangements, and they haven't had any further problems over there. We haven't had any further problems over here. Whatever they did after Port Arthur's been done, they now to need to move on and dump this idea of progressively trying to remove firearms from the hands of shooters in, in, in New South Wales and the rest of Australia. It needs to be stopped. Legally held and registered firearms are in good hands, and that's the way they should leave them. That's right. And Canada got rid of their registry. New Zealand have had it gone for a long time. America don't have it. Well, the trouble with Australia, with Australian bureaucracy, especially those living in Canberra, uh, is that they have an overweening need to control. Um, and uh, that seems to be the thing that I see. They have an overweening need to overcomplicate things, and they always want to overly control what we do. And that's why it plays very nicely into the into the hands of uh, creeps like the Greens and uh, the far left of the Labor Party and even the, even the left of the Conservative parties. They are control freaks who like to be able to tell you how to suck eggs. They are nanny staters. Okay, and uh, that, that, that politics is the politics of the past and it's got to be stopped. And then bantering and, and you know, playing into the hands of minorities. I'm not sure why we do that. That's right, exactly. Anyway, that's well, good well, stuff. They do it. They do it politically because they can, but the Shooters and Fishers Party and other parties that are developing around Australia, we're there to stop them doing it because they can politically. And you know, I'd be horrified the day they actually became. Yeah, you know, they you know, they they give us grief at the moment federally, probably, and you know, in the upper house where you guys have got to deal with them too. So I'd hate to see them get more, which I don't think is going to happen. They've been found out, as I said in mainstream media. They're finally. People are starting to realise what they're all about and hopefully they get preference last at the next elections and they, they head into oblivion. I think everyone, the world would be a better place. Well, that's right. But as I say, it's, it, it goes even further than that. The mainstream parties have got to understand that the, the political activities of uh, oppressed groups and shooters and fishers are amongst the most oppressed and the most regulated people in society are not going to sit back politically and, uh, and cop it. It's just not going to happen anymore. So they need, they need to move on and develop a new model.
That's right. We're more than happy to help and work with government to do that. All right, Rob, thanks for coming on the show. Before we finish, if people wanted to go to, say, the website, I mean, obviously we know about the political donations. How can they donate? How can they join the Shooters and Fishers Party? And uh, who can they contact if they want more information about it? Well, they can contact... Uh, oh, sorry, they can just go straight to our website, www.shootersandfishers.org.au, and on there you'll see all the little buttons to press for donations and joining the party. Uh, we'd, we'd ask people to join. You can join from any state in Australia. Uh, that's easy to do, and you just nominate what state branch you want to belong to. Uh, the party's red, the party website is effectively a uh, federal party website, uh, so it'll take applications from anywhere and anybody. And, um, yeah, we've also, of course, on uh, Facebook. We've got an official Facebook page there, so you can follow us there if you want. Uh, we're also uh, on Twitter, so follow Twitter if you like. And uh, we've also got a YouTube channel as well. So uh, when you're sick of watching, uh, listening to me, then you can watch me on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's right too. I did get a, I did get a call from uh, who was it? So I'm not sure if you you write on the Facebook page, but I did get an email and a phone call from Paul from Precision Hunting Rolfers. He said the race to a thousand. He said you guys lost. <laughs> oh well, we're getting close, but, but they started, I think, with 100 or 200 ahead of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, he, he, he wanted me to mention that on the show. He said, "Tell him, guys, you got schooled to the thousands." So, <laughs> oh well, he's uh, he's um, yeah, he's done well on that. But I think he got a head start on us. Yeah, that's right. Oh yeah, that's <laughs> right. You got a head start. We won't we won't, we won't go into it. But anyway, all right, Rob, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate. Uh, again, you know, maybe this was something we can hopefully do probably every every six months or something. Keep you know keep the listeners updated on what's happening in the hunting and shooting and fishing industries and what the policies are coming up for the future. And it's great to have you. You know, you're making yourself available to me actually, and the listeners to you know get the information out there instead of being that you know bureaucratic uh, barrier in getting the information out. So as as always, it's appreciated. You and Brownie have done a fantastic job. As I said, I might get him on uh, next time as well. You know, I've got well, to make he him. Might, he might he might actually complain to me next time. Three <laughs> three nil. <laughs> yeah, I think you might be right. I was thinking the other day. I thought, hope he's not harboring any resentment. He probably thinks, oh, that bloody guy, Jason. I forget him from now on. <laughs> no, no, he's not like that at all. No, no, I'm just it was just a joke. But yeah, but no, thanks yeah. for coming on. I really do appreciate it. So uh, great to answer the listeners' questions today. Third time, it's been fantastic, and I uh, hope you have a great day. Thanks very much, Jason. You've just been educated, and this is the Australian Hunting Podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time.